The final four episodes of All the President's Minutes on One Heat Minute Productions feed are brought to you by Belly Catering. Bellycatering.com.au is where you can find one of Sydney's greatest catering companies. They've pivoted to home delivery, but they're getting back. Some catering gigs, they're coming back. We love you, Bella Catering. We love you, Glenna Maria, and the entire family and team. Thank you so much for being on this ride with us this entire year. 137 episodes, 120 plus hours of discussion of this 1976 masterpiece would not be, basically would not have been able to be done without you. So thank you so much. Also brought to you by everything we're doing on One Heat Meter Productions. Increment Vice has just wrapped up its 45 episodes. It came from the deep. An audiobook and after show in its very own feed is happening. Of course, Miami Nice still continues popping into your feed sporadically to inject a little bit of Colin Farrell into your life and some gong lead dancing and some terrific Katie Walsh, Maria Lewis, Travis Woods, Kat Corbett, the entire team at One Minute Productions. Thanks you. Now here's the goddamn story. So we sent Charles Firth along to a Clinton campaign event to offer Hillary some extra special support. Now, I've got my CV here. Because I want to be Hillary Clinton's intern, do you think? That would appeal to her. Very flattering photograph. Yeah? That's good. Yeah. This is intern material for the Clintons. See, I've got a great dry cleaner who can get any stain out so that we won't have the problems like they had with the other Clinton presidency. Yeah, yeah I think you need a trim. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. How did you get into the Oval Office to do this? That's a gross position. I'll give yeah. you that. I've got my CV here for Hillary. Can, can I get you to pass it on to her? Um, it's just... Step, step away. Leave her alone. Get no, no, away no, no, from no, me! No, it's fine. I, I, just want, I was just wondering whether you would be able to pass it on. Hillary? Hillary? I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for you, Hillary. If you could just see my portfolio, I'm sure you would want me as your intern. I'm sure you would be convinced. I'd really like to not have sexual relations with you in the Oval Office. Thank you. Hillary Clinton, Charles Firth from The Chase, I'd like to apply to be your intern. <laughs> I, I, know I know you've had a bit of trouble with them in the past, but, but I, I think if you saw my portfolio, I can, I can bring my own cigar. Hillary, I, I can bring my own cigar um, if you... I'll give it to her Thank you very much. Th thank you. That's great. Just pass on. Tell her I've got a bigger one if, um, if needed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. It is 135 episodes down right now as you're listening in this 137 episode show. I'm talking the 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. Robert Redford and Alan Pakula's masterpiece that is and along the way sprinkled in very early on in the first 10 episodes I spoke to one of my guest collaborators Mr. Mark Humphreys who I call one of the greatest satirists in the country this man is the producer of some of Australia's best satire and has for about the last 20-ish years almost and they're back because when do we need satire more than anything right now in this absolute garbage fire of a year uh, this man has He's spoken to members and flirted with members of the Westboro Baptist Church. He's embedded himself in all sorts of nuttiness that has happened in the USA. Probably no one understands what's happening in the USA and around the election better than this man. Uh, he's been on shows like CNNNN, The Chaser. He's had his own segment called Firth in the USA, reporting live from 
basically what is now Trump's United States. Um, and he's about to produce a whole stack of sketches uh, in collaboration with the team at The Shovel called The War on 2020. It's my great pleasure to talk to one of Australia's best satirists, Charles Firth, on All the President's Minutes. Mate, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Hello, Blake. Thank you so much for having me. So you've been there on the ground. There's been so many times I've listened to many shows and podcasts and things like that in the lead up to America's election. This year has been a crazy one because I thought it would be an interesting exercise to do a project like this alongside a campaign for an election to see how, you know, nice parallels could be discussed. But on a lot of, funnily enough, on a lot of comedic podcasts, comedians who are touring around the country in the United States were like, you know, a lot of people are saying the Democrats are in front and the polling says it's in front, but even in the midst of coronavirus, people going, I'm touring and there's a lot of people that are going to vote for Donald Trump. I really want to first and foremost, before we dive into this flick, get some insight from you as a guy who's like been on the ground in those battleground states as part of your gig for a long time in producing stuff. Was it any surprise to you, like leading up to this, that how, you know, how, how Trump had targeted and captured the imaginations of that sort of, you know, Trump America now? No, because we actually went through, with, with James from the, from the shovel, actually, um, we went through there in 2016 as well. We went to all the major swing states that turned for Trump back then, which was like North Carolina and Pennsylvania yes. and Ohio. And, um, and even then, um, it was just, it was so remarkable going, especially in Pennsylvania and Ohio, going to these places that they were the rust belt. They were yeah. places where um, there were steel mills that were just shut and there was a lot of white people who um, were just so angry at how, you know, the fifth generation steel workers, whatever. Yeah. The dads and the granddads had all, you know, provided for their families. And these people in their 20s and 30s were so angry about the fact that... And they had to blame somebody. They had to blame somebody for the fact that their lives, they were just not as successful as their parents and their grandparents. Yes. And and Trump was the person to answer that with, you know, yeah, blame the Democrats, blame the Chinese, blame everything <laughs> one other than... The people who, you know, <laughs> closed the steel mills and shipped all the jobs overseas, or you know, and replaced them. And, and blame globalization that was largely yeah. triggered by Reagan economics back in yeah. the eighties and the Republican Party. Um, yeah, all the all those things. But yeah, like the that that anxiety and that frustration is real, and like tapping yeah. into people's fury. Like it seems to, it's like it's it's you know, from an outsider, it's like it's intoxicating. Yeah, and 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 I think. One of the things, because people were surprised that Trump, yeah, I think he actually increased his vote this this year. Like Massively, was, yeah. Like the, yeah. there's, uh, I think I was reading uh, the other day, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and find the source just while we're we're chatting, but it was that no American president or candidate had ever eclipsed seventy million mm, votes, yeah. and both Biden has now eclipsed eighty million, and Trump has eclipsed seventy three million. So obviously, you know, um, there's a lot of 
contention even right now as we're talking it's the 26th of november in australia as we're speaking and as we're talking there's still a lot of contention and nonsense and seems to just be fluff basically that the trump uh, uh campaign lost um and is arguing it in court but it's still one of the most phenomenal turnouts ever and both candidates got voted got more votes than any other candidate ever in history and i think trump in the previous election was the first one to get even close to 70 million and I think the thing that um, people underestimate about Trump um, is just how incredibly charming he is. And, and that means that his sort of rough side, he can sort of disavow the sort of racism or the, you know, yeah. because it, it, he is brilliant in person. He should have been a stand-up comedian. Like we, Early on, um, this was like the beginning of about 2015, it must have been. Might have even been late 2014. I went over there just on my own and went to a whole of, like he was literally holding these rallies in barns. Wouldn't have been more than about 500 people per barn. Tiny little venues. Like I was within stabbing distance of him back then. <laughs> and he was just doing, he was working up his, his gig, like he was literally just he was working it mind. out. He was working it out. Yeah, and then, and 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 finding you know the right reactions, and and that allows Republicans, I think, even respectable Republicans, to sort of go, well, actually, you know, yes, he's got some rough edges. He's a bit vulgar and things like that, but that's because he's an entertainer. Um. I'm going to vote for him because actually he has this charm that means he can't possibly be, he's, you know, <laughs> the evil monster that everyone says he is. So it's sort of, yeah. It, um, yeah, I don't think it's surprising. In some ways, what I think was important, because I sort of thought that he'd try and work out a way to steal the election properly, right? Like, and it is remarkable. Like they did, you know, in a lot of those legislatures, during this year, like a lot of states passed laws that you had to count the postal ballots last. Yeah. So that whole narrative that they were trying to set up on election night, oh, you know, um, we won it on election night. That was a very pre-planned thing. You just had to also hold in your brain. That, so you had that thought, but then you had to hold in your brain the, the fact that Trump is also just profoundly incompetent and <laughs> a little bit less incompetent, like he would have been able to steal it. Like it's not for lack of trying. No, and, you know, and, there, there was a, it's a sophisticated idea. I think. Months of removing, even this is what's crazy, you know, and you, you're seeing pictures of it online and I'm sure you are dialed in. I, I mean, I shudder to think of what you, you guys trawl through on socials as the chaser, but you know, you're seeing trucks that are loaded with post boxes months out from the election. Like they keep the, they keep where there used to be 30 post boxes where people could do ballots in one city. They have one in the center of town. So people who are fearful of COVID and are fearful of outbreaks and aren't go, and aren't venturing far out of their houses, literally have take, take 30 options away from them, have one, then reducing the windows that you can vote. 
You know, that was like, there was all this sort of squirrely stuff. And, you know, again, to the credit of the voters themselves being educated, they kind of got out there and they did it. And, and it just, it's just kind of unfathomable. I think it's, it's always good to sort of pressure test and why I love talking to Aussies and especially Aussie satirists like yourself who got her aware. It's like, when I'm trying to talk to an American, I'm like, we essentially, in Australia, we essentially have a popular vote and a preferential one. And there's not, a, and it's actually, it's so much, uh, there's a lot of fines and trouble you can get in if you don't, if you, if you register and you don't vote, like that's a, that's a problem. And so that's never a problem for us when we're talking, when there's a narrative about who's being voted for in our country, it's more about, you know, do people, are people making a discerning decision because they even care because, you know, yeah. that, that, that's actually the political engagement of getting out there and campaigning and being compelled to vote rather than being forced to vote is two different, two different things in our country. Yeah. Although I must say, I think one similarity between um, Australians and Americans when observing their own politics is that I think both believe, like most of my American friends believe that America is a democracy, right? Like, so, and the, th the reason why as foreigners, we can't really interpret a lot of this sort of voter suppression techniques is you go, but how is that even, how, how, like the goal of that, but, but actually there's a really good explanation for that, which is that there is a stream of thought within sort of conservative movements is that, no, no, we're not a democracy. We're, we're actually a republic and they have this sort of very esoteric distinction where they go, no, no, like, and it's true. America was based on slavery. Like the, the blacks didn't get a vote. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. um, it was It was never intended to be. It, this is their point. It was never intended to be a fully fledged democracy. It was. It was the people that we want to vote got the vote, and so we're just bringing back that hallowed past of yeah. You try everything in your power. You, you you're doing democracy to win power. You're not doing democracy because you believe one vote, one value, and all the things that follow from it. You, you're doing it to sort of have a good administration of, you know, the people that you want to be running the, the place. And I think that's why so many Republicans who supported Trump have been able to get on board with the idea is because it's not about going, democracy means equality, means one vote, one value. It just means, no, no, we're just trying to, you know, it's the end is the Republic. It's not, the end is not democracy. And, you know, I, I don't know how many Republicans, I love how they sort of casually espouse platonic, like the platonic ideal of what a Republic is, as in Plato, Plato who actually coined it, the phrase, but it's also like within that same hierarchy is like, we want people who are educated to be the people who vote, but also the person who leads the country is kind of going to be this, is going to be this insane, like really hyper-educated, collaborative Maybe he's been a warrior. Maybe he's been in agriculture. Maybe he's just, you know, a philosopher, a a what is it? A philosopher king, you know, that's the kind of like the head of this Plato's Republic. And it's like, he's the most, they gave that to the drunkest, most racist, charming uncle that has ever <laughs> lived on the face of the earth. The greatest con man that has ever walked the face of the earth is the guy. And it's, it's just really interesting to contextualize because it's like, I love in some, in some ways they say that. And in other ways they sort of pivot, they float back to the other of like, Oh, well, you know, he's just charming. Bless him. So the question I have is 
is America going to look once Trump's left and he no longer has power and all the sort of charisma that surrounds that power. Mm. Um, is his support going to suddenly evaporate and, you know, it'll go, you know, may not be, um, you know, may not be zero percent, but, you know, there'll be only a 20% ramp rather than the 45% it is now. Or is it, is he just such a showman that even without the trappings of the presidency, he can sort of mount an effective opposition in a way that you've never really seen before in America where there's a proper opposition leader. No, no clue. No clue. Yeah. But we we have to go back to 1976 because so much oh, of yeah. the Trump <laughs> so much of the Trump playbook has been taken from one Richard Milhouse Nixon, who in the moment that we're talking about is being inaugurated for the second time after four years of you know, very calculating political malfeasance and uh, and and espionage, and, and we've learned in minutes preceding this that everyone is involved. So, my very um, my very educated guest, Mr. Charles Worth, and I are going to sit down and we're going to watch the hundred and thirty fifth minute of this movie together. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about everything we feel. Now it's in twenty twenty, and this is a crazy, crazy year that we're in. Your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand and please repeat after me. I, Richard Nixon, do solemnly swear. I, Richard Nixon, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve and protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. it is charles that is the the um the 21 gun salute in that movie is just wonderful it's so powerful it's so great and what i love you can't beat you know speaking of showmanship you can't beat his conviction and his voice that just i don't know what it is the register of his voice i solemnly swear like just something <laughs> about it it's it's you know he lo- he loved that office, man. He once he had his claws into that office, he did not want to let it go. There was nothing that he wanted to do, and and he, and 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 you know, history's you know the 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 history that bookends this movie are bigger than the movie. So obviously we don't get get in there, but seeing this moment of you know essentially one moment of triumph and then another, but playing completely differently at either end of this movie, I, I just I can't get enough of this final scene for its restraint, but also um, for the message here. You know, beautiful split diopter shot. From Gordy Willis, the cinematographer, Pacula, you got Redford, you got Hoffman, and they're just typing away because if they don't, mm. you know, they can't stop. They cannot stop writing these, you know, writing these stories and breaking these huge revelations. They can't stop because no one else is gonna, no yeah. one else is gonna do it. They're, um, yeah, like as he's being sworn in, <laughs> our writing is victory. Like, yeah, literally, 
Uh, yeah, and and it's and it's so you're right about the restraint because there's there's nothing else that needs to be said. You, you've no. seen what what is happening, and it's just it's it's all unfolding. I mean, it, the the sound that that you get from those typewriters, like that, they, they are the the guns. You know, that they are the guns of this uh, whole. I mean, I, I love the fact that this whole movie. There's all these parallels to um, to action movies. Yes, but but it's all it's all analog. It's yes. like the guns, the typewriter sounds, and they like they've been recorded in such a way that they have such a piercing. Well, that and then, that, and, fir- um, that first date that like that that smashes down, you know, that first date that smashes down, yeah, that, that, yeah, like right at the bang, yeah. bang, 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 yeah. they could be gunshots. Boom, boom, then, boom. And by the end, um, like like during just as you go to the credits, um, it's got an electric typewriter. Yeah, the teletype. Like it's like semi-automatic, <laughs> an automatic machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. You know, ending with Nixon resigns. But the other thing is, I think just in the lead up to that scene, I think the scene, the scene just before that, I don't know, you you'd know better than yeah. me. <laughs> um, isn't there a sort of they're running through the office? And it's almost like it's a car chase, but actually, um, absolutely, it's 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 not yeah. far it's not far away from where we've been talking. It's it, there's a revelation a little bit earlier, I, and, and I want to say it's around the sort of um, let's just say like a between about a minute 110, 115. Oh. It's, it's a little bit back because that revelation is sort of the final Canuck letter. It's where they confront their colleague Sally Aitken. Um, and yeah. they, and, and, you know, ask her if the confession came from Nixon's communication advisor, Charles, uh, um, uh, Charles Colson, if he'd actually, you know, said it to go to bed with her. And I agree that there is them streaming through the office and then also Redford running to the elevators to confirm with yeah. Bradley that they've got the story. Yeah. It's, it's like, they, they haven't got big set pieces that are outside. Everything's in this gorgeous newsroom, this incredible oh, thing. Amazing newsroom. <laughs> and it's used to such effect um, at, at so many different times, including in that scene just then, where yes. you know, you, you've got them both sitting and it's just all paper. The whole set is built out of paper. So good. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, that, that's the funny thing that you're even your collaborator mr mark humphreys i love and and the directors of war on 2020 from you know feed sbs alums they shoot in the newsroom at sbs all the time like they'll like you know just you know stop what you're doing guys because we're we're shooting a newsroom segment here right now like a fake newsroom segment right now and we need you to say a line or whatever but it's um you know so that contemporary newsroom it's it has a little bit of personality in life because it is real um in some of even the silly skits that they shoot but there's something different about the tactile nature of like paper and little badges on the desks and books all over the place and smoking and wide set ties and everything here. I love the hustle and bustle around these guys and how there's so much noise. Like literally there is noise. Like you couldn't, um, in all of my journo friends, and this is probably something yourself, you know, publishing things yourself is, all of my journal friends are so amazing at working through noise. You know, some people are like, I need to just put my headphones on and I need to do the work. Whereas like, you know, one of my best mates, Maria Lewis, who's been on the show many times, 
she's stayed with my wife and I a few times and, you know, for, for long periods and we've got two little kids and there could be a hail of chaos in our house. Like the kids streaming up and down running and I'll just see her on a laptop, just like, like mowing through a chapter or a freelance article or whatever. And she, there's nothing, just nothing. Like she's literally like Woodward and Bernstein in this moment. There's the 31 gun salute of my kids running through the house. And she's just like, but like there's no distraction. And I just go, I marvel at it, but that's like, this whole environment for those old school journos or cadets that came up, you know, even in the early eighties and things like that, like there was a wall of noise that was happening constantly and your ability to focus and block the noise out so that you could really laser focus in. And that's what these guys have been doing this whole time. And now, now they're doing the gig. And, and it's sort of so symbolic of what they were trying to piece together as well. Like there was all these pieces of information, yes. just like, like the <laughs> office itself, and they had to sort of piece it together, make sense out of chaos. Like that is the movie, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I was thinking about talking to you, Charles, uh, and this is a, like an, a dark alternate timeline of this show, I was always thinking, shit, you know, this show could potentially end with Donald Trump having won an election and, and, and a lot of people who had been lined up to speak on the show who've now spoken passionately and positively and, you know, with a, with a, a you know, flickering hope of like, we're going to get a handle of this pandemic. We're going to get a handle of some of the mess that's been done, like, you know, societally and culturally in our country and really start to face some tough questions with a more measured level head. That's not trying to incite chaos. That's just going to try and help bring people together. Mm. But in the back of my mind, I've been thinking this whole time, like, Holy shit, what, how, how would the dialogue have gone if Trump won? And these minutes are the minutes that I was still yearning to talk through, which is like, Hey, guess what? Nixon didn't not win. You know, he he won. And it took people still tirelessly holding him to account for kind of the brazen actions that he was undertaking um, to eventually get him out. But I just don't think, I don't think anyone believed that Trump had a, there was no ace up anyone's sleeve that could get Trump out. Like everyone thought that it was the grabbing by the pussy. Everyone thought that it's like telling the proud boys to stand by. Everyone thought that it's like, you know, shooting people with pepper spray and rubber bullets, like uh, in the black lives matter protests, like every, like it's like everyone's thought that they had a Watergate moment and nothing has stuck on this guy. He's Teflon Don. He loves it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, look, I think um, the whole thing about um, Donald Trump is, is that wonderful um, John Oliver. Do you watch John Oliver? I do. Um, yeah. Where, Whenever John Oliver gets him, he, he rolls out. The, we got, <laughs> we got him. him. We finally got him. <laughs> and There's so balloons. Just, yeah, it's just not about. I mean, I think isn't that the whole point? Like, and and what he shows is that you don't you don't do. It's all theatre, and so as long as you're not defensive about anything, you don't you don't play the emotions of guilt. Yes, and therefore um, there's nothing. And, and in some ways, Trump is not like Nixon because Nixon no. was caught with the cover-up. He knew he'd done something wrong, and by virtue of um, their sort of moral framework, whatever moral framework <laughs> he had, you know, he sort of went, "Oh, well, we should be a bit ashamed about this." 
Whereas Trump would just go, oh yeah, we broke in, we tried to bug them. That's what they would have done to us anyway. <laughs> he wouldn't have even, he wouldn't have even admitted yeah. to the bugging. He would have just gone, do you know how many times they've tried to bug me? Do you know how many times yeah, yeah. that they've bugged me? Here's a here's a graph, and it's like a l- extra large printout from PowerPoint. Here's this is where they tried to bug me. This is and it's yeah the the moral barometer of the Trump candidacy is insane. And and so like when I watch this movie, so many times I'm gonna watch this minute. I'm just like, you're playing by a different set of rules, but the way to combat it is still the same. Like it is still really rigorous editorial, you know, scrutiny to make sure that if you do have powerhouse stories, not to publish early, like to go hard when you've got them, you know, to go hard and and to make sure that you've got the sources and you protect them and, and, you know, working from the outside and looking at all these things. And, and, and to a large extent, when you look back at the 2016 campaign and just how many Trump advisors are all like doing time in, you know, all these (laughs) have all been indicted. It's like, yeah, it's taken probably four years. Well, Watergate wasn't fast either. You know, there were there was actually a government in power, senatorial hearings, like to scrutinize these people. And it's like they were, you know, the reporting wasn't the thing that did it. It was actually big Senate hearings, big things like that that happened much later. Um, but you know, these and guys have got it. the reporting to to get. Yeah. The reporting is the the reporting is the you know is the is the start of the avalanche, but all of that stuff that builds up to the indictments is all Senate hearings, and it's the public being inspired by like, hey, what's happening, and scrutinizing their different media outlets to push for it. It's a cr- in, the, in the original um, you know indictments in the movie, um, it was just the five men were charged, and that was it. That was, That's it. It was just going to disappear. Yeah. Uh, and the and, great and, and the great I, tapes, the great tapes. Give I can get a million dollars for him. I can get a million dollars for him. You know, go reaching into that kitty. One of the interesting things right now is watching Trump's sort of political strategy to win the election, going up against the the legal barriers that you know you you turn up to an actual court in Pennsylvania, you actually can't argue that um, it was stolen in court because it's illegal to do a thing called perjury. You can totally do that in the media. You can play a political game like that. But that's that's the problem that I think, yeah, and you're right, Trump is going to face that um, increasingly in the next few years because, yeah, it's going to be the hearings, the Senate hearings and the <laughs> lawsuits that um, ultimately bring in debt, hopefully. Although, but, and no, and what, what the lawsuits you know, just in the last few days, he's lost all 33 lawsuits in a row now about the election. You just go, there is a hard reality of truth that actually does exist within those systems. Um, and, and it's interesting that the media itself has not actually sort of laid a glove on Donald Trump in all this time. But that's because its truth is... is, is you know, accumulated through convention and, um, yeah, and a set of trust and standards. And he's he's undermined so well the trust in the media that, um, yeah, look, uh, it really is going to have to be Senate hearings that brings him down. You know, it's a shame, Charles, and you just said it, and I think this is your, this is why satirists have become so important, <laughs> is, um, to be honest, is, you just seen cutting through the bullshit of like, wouldn't it be great on the front of multiple great papers? And let's just start with the Washington post because you know, this is what we're talking about above the fold on the physical front page, just 
zero and 33 as big and as loud as you like it. Like it's big, zero 33. Yeah. 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 Like across you know, 33 claims, falsity, Trump wrong, just like hardest facts. I don't want to got, you know, Marty Barron, who was the, the editor in chief at the Boston globe when they broke spot, when spotlight broke the, the, the heinous um, Catholic church child, um, uh, child abuse scandals is now the editor in chief at the Washington post. And, you know, his character played by Liev Schreiber, who, one of the only great American actors who can do an Aussie accent, like brilliantly um, uh, is. Which is the test. Of course. It's the test. It is the yeah. only test as far as I'm concerned. No, it's, um, but as Marty Barron, he says that great line from Spotlight, which is like, no, take the ad, you guys, take the adjectives out of this. You know, let's like strip it back down to what the facts are. And I, I think zero and 33, there's like, if you were talking about a fighter, like even in the UFC, there's some guys you see and they're like, there's zero and eight. And you're like, just please stop. You're going mm. to get killed. Like, please stop fighting. Even when that number starts to be like close to, you know, it's like two to one wins or losses, <laughs> it's good. But if people are like 50-50, you're like, man, get out of here. Like, get out of this. You know, you were good when you were young and you're old now and you're only just a punching bag for some young pup who's coming up and he's, you know, hungrier than you, faster than you, all those sorts of things. It's, it's like using a sporting analogy. And I, imagine a football game, a rugby match, whatever it is, NFL, 33 zip, Mm. it's, it's yeah. pretty definitive but one of the things that Trump is so good at doing though is turning those you know like he you know you put the 33-0 up on the thing and he'll just jujitsu it into yeah see the whole system's right rigged again <laughs> even the courts are against me yeah yeah it's like it's, it, he's got an answer for everything it, I mean it really does show how useful it is as a human skill to just lack shame of any <laughs> form. True. I mean, you sort of go, oh, fuck, I wish I was like that. I wish I just had no shame whatsoever. And, that, and that's why Colbert, you know, Stephen Colbert, who rose to, you know, such notoriety and fame, like playing the Colbert character, was that shameless Republican, like he imbued that character yeah. with that shamelessness, and people loved him for it because there is just something about utter shamelessness. And yeah. you know, despite all of his absolutely flagrant nonsense, um, he, he's been there will never be someone who's funnier in a campaign. Like his early campaigns yeah. when he was skewering oh. Republicans, no one was funnier than him. Like when he was like yeah. like when he basically gutted the Republican establishment and just destroyed them all on his pathway to victory. Um, it was kind of crazy. It was kind of lunacy yeah. and, you know, coming up with nicknames like crooked Hillary and whatever, like it was funny, but then it hurt because it all stuck. And it was like, Oh my yeah. God, like it, this, this should be, you're not, I think you hit the nail on the head. He should have been a stand up comedian, but finally, but what? What, but, but just with the giving nicknames to people, don't you think the mistake was for him to give Joe Biden the Sleepy Joe Biden nickname? Because that that stuck, Sleepy Joe Biden. But that's what everyone wanted after four years of Trump. <laughs> oh, a sleepy president. Oh, mate, please. Mate, yeah, like sometimes your nicknames are too good. They're just too yeah, good because yeah. they know <laughs> Sleepy Joe Biden. Good. I want to rest. I think everyone needs a rest after 2020. <laughs> this year is gone for a decade. Um, and we're fine. It's like someone was like, what won, uh, what won best picture last year? And you're like, oh, I can't remember. Like Parasite in February. And you're like, God, 
Oh, really? That, yeah, that was this year, wasn't it? That was this year. Ah. I started this show this year. And I'm like, the biggest problem that we were talking about at the beginning of the year was Australia is on fire. Mm. And yeah. it's, it's, it's gone through every, it's gone through every unbelievable iteration that we've charted along on this show. And I, I still, I'm still struggling to believe that it actually exists, but can I ask you're a great satirist. Have you like, what's your relationship with these kind of movies, like journalism movies, movies from the seventies, those sorts of things. Like, do you, is this something, a movie that you revisited um, pretty frequently or a movie that you like? And what do you think of it now watching it in 2020? I, I hadn't seen it. I reckon I hadn't seen it in 10 years. Um, uh, and I mean, I love, I love, I'm a sucker. 70s movies, I reckon, are, that's the peak of cinema ever because it was this unique time when genuinely political, you know, important pieces were doing blockbuster numbers. Yes. The mid-tier, the mid-tier political dramas, like Network, China Syndrome, like there were just so many of them, you know, people at the top of their craft, you know, people that actually come out of the 50s, which was sort of, you know... Very repressed. Yeah. And and 60s was sort of, you know, getting there, but still quite conservative. You know, it took Hollywood a while to catch up. And then you had these new directors on the scene just actually making statements of important movies. You know... could not ignore these movies. Um, and it really was, I mean, it was the peak of American cinema. Extraordinary time. Yeah. Um, just so, yeah. Even this year, 1976, mm. at the Oscars, in competition for Oscar was Taxi Driver, Network, All the President's Men, and Rocky. <laughs> like which one, which one won? Rocky won Best Picture. Rocky won oh, Best Picture. Ah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, but this is this is, this, this is what some people say the turning point is, right? Because it's like, you know, you could turn on network and I have frequently during this project and before, cause I love, I, I love yeah. network and, and all the president's men. And I think later, because, you know, as a person for anyone who's listening, this is your first episode. Welcome. Um, but we did another <laughs> show as part of our series called one heat minute. And I'm a massive Michael Mann fan and I watched the insider and I feel like the insider has, very much equal parts of both all the president's men and network in that it's kind of, it, it accepts the, the reality of network. Like you put on network now and like TV executives are sort of fearing out how they can have death and live TV. And you're like, this makes sense. I, I would agree <laughs> that I would, you know, that I could see that. But it's, you know, that whole seventies period is just insanity. You know, 76, yeah. 74 in, in 74, you've got, you know, things like Chinatown, in seventy four, you got China. Yeah, no, seventy six is taxi driver, but like Chinatown, The Godfather Part Two, The Conversation, they're all made in seventy four. Like it's just one year. Yeah. It's just <laughs> like stop, stop. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's an incredible, incredible, incredible thing. Yeah, um, and whereas in twenty twenty, I mean, Parasite was brilliant, but in twenty twenty, I don't think we've had a single good movie. Yeah, aren't they just holding them all back for? Look, I've, I mean, some people in this movie community, like myself, we get some screeners of stuff that was at festivals that is now like just being, oh, 
that's eking out on home video, but in Oz, it's tough. You know, I think, I actually think in Australia for any of our Aussie listeners, like in December, we're probably going to get like a year's worth of great movies on all of our streaming platforms because everything's basically going to get dumped onto Amazon prime and Stan and Netflix because it's like now here's, you know, sort of our run up to 2021 slash award season. It's all just going to land on our heads all in one go. But yeah, it's like 2020 is like going to be a massive question mark of the year. It's it's insane. Yeah, it's, you know, bad. No, the, the highest they, grossing movie of the year was Bad Boys for Life. You know, beat Tenet. There's no Marvel movies. Like, you know, it's a strange year. You know, it's a, it's a really odd year. It's it's not 1976, is what you're saying. <laughs> I am definitely saying that. I'm. You know, in '75, the year that Jaws was nominated for Best Picture but missed out on Best Director, so Spielberg missed out on his first Best Director nomination was what is the 1976 Oscars. So, uh, you know, for films of 1975 release, the best director nominees that year were Milos Forman for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Fellini for Armacord, Stanley Kubrick for Barry Lyndon, Sidney Lumet for Dog Day Afternoon and Robert Altman for Nashville. So if you don't get a... If you don't get a if you don't get a Guernsey at that director's table, I know you might have the shits, but seriously, <laughs> Bellini, Foreman, Kubrick, <laughs> Lumet, Altman. Like I'd be like, fine, fine. Yeah. That's okay. I get it. Very annoying. <laughs> but you know, but similarly, you know, absolutely incredible incredible couple of years. And uh, and obviously that was the year that Cuckoo's Nest um sort of swept the Oscars. But I mean Holy what holy shit, what an incredible lineup of just directors for the nineteen seventy five yeah. nominees. Yes. So why why doesn't it why is it all gone to shit now? I suppose I suppose because we're living through the golden age of television, isn't it? So it's you having, don't get those mid year yeah. movies anymore. They've all moved on to streaming platforms. Yeah, I think I, and it's also, you know, we're living I think we've thought that we've had these moments of societal, social, cultural upheaval moments before, but you know, Watergate, the Watergate era, the Vietnam war era and, and the civil rights era in the United States and all of the, all of the way that that sort of, you know, Western imperialism affected the rest of the world, especially Oz and, and all of our turmoil. So much of that was focused in the 1970s. And I, I genuinely don't think there's been an era like it until like right now. Like someone living yeah. through, you know, in, in the next few years, there may be a, a movie year and a movie, you know, um, uh, there may be a movie year and there may be a movie production uh, set of things that'll come out. And, but you know, I, I consistently, I consistently wonder like, what that, what the hell is this? What is happening? And, you know, it, I mean, one of the last years that I, I, I frequently reference um, uh, on this show as like another year that is like a 1976 with all the president's men or, or is one of those years is like in 2007. So the year before Barack Obama was elected. So it's two terms of George Bush yes. post nine 11. There's multiple wars going on in the world. Conservatism is, you know, burgeoning throughout the world. We get 2007 in one year, we get the assassination of Jesse James by the cow at Robert Ford. We get no country for old men. We get, there will be blood. Um, there will be yes. I mean, there there are some years like, and I think of 2007 a lot, and I'm like, all of those are, you know, uh, we get Charlie Wilson's War, which is really terrific. Um, all of those in the same year, they they like though that year inspired it, and it's like, well, maybe maybe, next, you know, maybe yeah, next we'll, year, maybe we'll, in the next few yeah, years, we're going to start to see. 
2022, 2023 was that season. Because we need it. Like, the pandemic, we need a cultural response to it. Like, people yeah. need to protest what the fuck has happened. It's, it's extraordinary, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that you guys are doing that with yours. So tell us, just, just while we're wrapping yeah. up, please tell us about the sketches coming for war in 2020 and you guys helping us process this absolute garbage fire of a year. Well, I think we just uh, help you laugh at it. Because <laughs> otherwise you'd cry. Yes. Um, but we've done, we, we actually, it's funny in our first writers meeting. So we've got like 10 comedians from across the country all doing it. Um, and I'm really pleased with just some real up and comers, but then also, you know, people like Mark Humphreys, who people would recognise, um, Vic and Jenna, but also Sammy Shah, Nina Oyama, um, Steph Tisdall. So really, really top tier satirists from around the country. And we turn up to the first writers meeting and everyone pitched a couple of sketches each. And nobody had thought to write anything about COVID or the coronavirus. <laughs> And I thought that we just thought that was really telling because it was like, yeah, yeah, because everyone sort of assumed that somebody else would do it. But also, we we didn't really want to talk about that. We wanted to talk about, you know, you know. So we've got some great. Um, we do actually have some coronavirus sketches. In I think you, it'd be inesca- it'd be inescapable yeah. for you not to have. I'm sure. But it's funny that the inclination is like someone has to have done a better bit on this than me. So I'm going to go yeah, with yeah. something else. That's a bit more me. Well, one of the ones that we ended up using was um, uh, Mark and Evan wrote this one called Dickhead 19. <laughs> and it was actually all about, you know, um, the toilet paper hoarding and <laughs> all that sort of stuff and how the spread is a virus around <laughs> Australia. And, and that it was a far more, far more savage uh, thing than, than you know, the coronavirus. It was Dickhead 19. And... Um, <laughs> And I think being able to sort of laugh at ourselves um, for, for all those sorts of things, like the observational humour side of it, yes, I think where people are at. Like I think people don't particularly yet want to point fingers and start the blame game. People just want to laugh at ourselves for everything we've been through. So, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. you know, I... I I want to, I want to laugh at that because there's moments like this year where you're actually scared of it. Like there was one time where I said to my wife when she was about to head off to a supermarket, cause I started watching, I started seeing videos pop up of people fighting at our local supermarket when they're, you know, when they were getting into arguments with trolleys and I said, if, you, if someone's fighting for you, just leave the trolley. Like we'll figure it out. You know, we've got yeah, enough, yeah. To, you know, we'll figure it out. Like just leave. <laughs> cause I couldn't understand it. I was just like, well, okay, that's fine. But, um, uh, I, I think if anything, people want to laugh and, um, uh, you know, and I'm excited to see what you guys come up with, you and your team. But, man, thank you so much for coming on, letting me derail you and your insights for one of our final episodes of this series, All the President's Minutes, and talk about this movie and great 70s movies. It's a real treat, and I'm a big fan and uh, of you guys and everything that you've done as the chaser. And, uh, yeah, it's just an honour to talk to you, and thank you so much for being a part of the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Mike. It was such an honour to be on the show and it was really enjoyable. I really enjoyed that conversation. It was, it was a really nice way into just chatting about everything. Um, and also, it forced me to watch All the Presidents Men again. So, <laughs> love it. This is what I call win-win.
That was my incredible guest, one of the great satirists in this country, Mr. Charles Firth. Charles, you can find at, at Charles Firth on Twitter. Um, but really, right now, while they're doing the war on 2020, the only place you need to go is chaser.com.au forward slash live to find everything about the war on 2020. Charles, thank you so much. And the entire team, I'm looking forward to checking out what they're doing. Two episodes to go. Wow. It's getting real. One Blake minute for myself if you want to keep following what we're doing. At ATPM Pod to keep following how the show is going to end. We have two more episodes. One with an equal fan, a peer in love with this movie just as much as I am. And uh, I can't wait for you to hear that chat with him. And then finally, as we trail off, in, it's not even a full minute before the credits with the one and only Jane Alexander, our bookkeeper. Talk to you soon.